were going to be there. So if I was head of the uh, head of the Fed, I would look to that discount window to take the weak players out. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. A common refrain amongst the market experts I talk with is that we can't be investors in the current environment. Instead, we're all forced to be speculators, guessing what Fed Chair Jerome Powell and the other Federal Open Market Committee members are going to decide to do next, because that's all that matters to price action these days. Like it or not, that's the world we're living in right now. So it makes all the sense in the world to tap the perspective of someone who knows the Fed inside and out, which is why we're fortunate to have Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, joining us today. Daniel was a former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve during the global financial crisis, working under Richard Fisher, and she's author of the book Fed Up. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be back, Adam. Good to see you. Oh, it's always great to talk to you, Danielle, and incredibly timely right now. There's a lot to talk about uh, with the Fed. Um, really quickly, I got two very high-level questions for you. The first is my standard kickoff question, which is, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? If you had to sum them up, you know, how would you how would you put it? Uh, I think we are at. Um... It's difficult to, to describe. I mean, it really, really is difficult to, to describe where we are because of the, the globality of the moment to see so many major economies in distress mm -hmm. is nothing like I've ever seen, including during the great financial crisis. So we're in extraordinary, extraordinary times right now. All right, um, I want to I want to dig more into that with you, but let me um, let me ask another very high level question, which is, what is your assessment of current Fed policy, and do we learn anything important with the release of the latest uh, FOMC minutes last week? Uh, I, I think I think we did. Um, the, the the Fed is not well. Let me put it: Jay Powell has never liked the dot plot. He's been dismissive of it because you can't you can't say what the world's going to do in a few years i'm paraphrasing him he, he's always he's always been very nonchalant uh, about the dot plots the dot plot was the star of the press conference last week he referred to it six times and it was clear that he wanted for the dot plot to be a major communication tool to show how aligned his committee is and dedicated to going the distance and tightening beyond what anybody thought would would be possible right now. And I and I think that that there was I mean there was this was to me this was the most tangible change that I have ever seen in Fed communication in all of my years in in one press conference period. Wow, that is a big statement. Yeah, they um, look, there's uh, the, the possibility that we're going to see 5% uh, on the terminal Fed funds rate double what broke the back of the markets uh, in 1819. It's inconceivable. Along with quantitative tightening, there's, there's just uh, um, 
this is extraordinary. They, they took their GDP estimate for full year 2022 down to 0.2%. I mean, that you know, they, they might as well put a negative sign in front of it and, and, and announce, hey, we're, we're just going to plow right through this recession. Yep. But, but they, they, they dispensed with niceties. They were like, let's take the dot plot down so low, nobody asked, and I was surprised that anybody asked about soft landing. The one, of the, one of the reporters still asked about it. I'm like, what about 0.2% for the full year don't you get, sister? It, right. it's, they're, saying that, <laughs> they're saying that they're going to tighten through a recession with this dot plot. All right. So, so many questions that come out of that. Um, what analogy first? So I, I know when you and I first talked about this, you, you had yet to watch the series. Um, but a year ago, there was a lot of drama going on around um, Powell's, um, the renewal of his his position. And, and we had talked about it kind of being like Game of Thrones uh, at the Fed. Now that that Powell has, has gotten the second term, to borrow another phrase from Game of Thrones, it sounds like he is sort of forcing everybody else at the Fed to bend the knee, right? Which is to say, yeah. hey, uh, you know, I'm setting the, the, the tone here. You're all going to line up behind me. We're going to show the world that you we are united here in being real serious about doing whatever it takes to get inflation under control. And you're sort of nodding as I'm saying this. Look, I mean, it, it was clear that the, the board wanted to exert its dovish control um, in the aftermath of the ousters of Eric Rosengren in Boston and Bob Kaplan in Dallas. And so to, to drill their point home, they brought Susan Collins in, who was kind of a University of Chicago, I think, I think she was University, she might've been MIT, but she was somebody cut in the cloth of the dovishness that, that best reflects that great dovish Fed board and the mm -hmm. staff. And we're gonna show you Boston for having you know had such a hawkish figure there in, in Rosengren. We're gonna put somebody there who has no voice at all and make sure that she always votes with the doves. First meeting out of the gate today. And she's saying, no, we gotta get it up there. We, 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 we gotta keep, keep, keep the inflation flight going, you fight going. So I mean, what, whatever dovishness she ever had in her career has been dispensed with before she made her first speech. As, as, as a district president for, for Boston. So just it's fascinating to see him saying, I have veto power. Get used to it, kids. Yeah. All right. And so here's here's the question I've been sort of leading up to here, which is, is this new sort of tough sheriff in town version of Jerome Powell? Is that what you think is what truly what's needed right now? Is he the man for the moment? He's certainly the man for the moment. Uh, you'd have you'd, you'd be hard pressed to have any president of the United States nominate to be Fed chair anybody with his credentials for a long time going forward, because he's you know he's <clears throat> as as our friend David Rosenberg said recently he's taking a wrecking ball to earnings. I mean, the, we're going to run out of analogies yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to describe him at some point. But but the question more so is one of, you know, what's he trying to accomplish? And I, I, I get the whole inflation thing, but but he's he's a practical guy. He 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 can follow real-time data as well as I can. He he's not a PhD in, econ in economics. He he doesn't live and breathe. You know, 
he doesn't like hyperventilate if, if he sees a series that's not seasonally adjusted like PhDs <laughs> in economics do. So he can see that, that the housing market is slowing hard. He can see that, that, that consumption and you mentioned RVs before we started talking. I, I drove from Indiana to Dallas uh, and looked at mile after mile after mile after mile of RVs, many of which were re repossessed. So he, he can follow all of these real-time indicators and know that inflation is not going to be problematic a year from now. So what's he doing? What's his purpose? Okay. Okay, well then let's dig into that, right? So you and I in our previous discussions, you know, we've talked about the Fed making a policy mistake um, and and also how hiking until he breaks something. Um, I'm going to say the Fed has has made a number of policy mistakes. One, right? One was creating the inflation that we're dealing with or contributing heavily to the inflation we're dealing with. Um, secondly, was not reacting last year. And I think almost everybody, you know, who follows the Fed is, is on that song sheet, which is the Fed should have started tightening a lot sooner than it did. Um, now, I think there's a lot of people who are saying that the Fed has already tightened too much. So it, it has already made another policy mistake um, that even if it were to stop now, it's probably broken something that, you know, because it's a lag in policy impact um, that we're going to find out you know, in the not too distant future that, okay, yeah, this important thing broke, but of course the Fed's continuing to tighten right now beyond that. Do you agree with all that assessment or do you have a different view? Oh, I think, I think the Fed's, the, the Fed's breaking developed economies. That, that's a, that's a new trick. Um, and that, that, that takes me to whether or not he is trying to break the Fed put, which is something that I've spoken about recently. Uh, and, and that will take his continuing to go down this path at very, very high risk of creating a, a global, we're in a global recession. Uh, the question is, is there going to be a global financial crisis? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the risk at this point. It's not, there's no, there's no question of, of recession. I mean, there are a few people left on the sell side who are, they're holding on for dear life. I, I, I understand it's your job. Um, yeah, we call them the magical thinkers, but okay, yeah. yeah. So, but it's, uh, but, but the question is, will there be a Minsky moment? Will there be something that is systemic and global in nature? Well, I'll tell you, having recently um, had Jim Rickards on this program, that's his big concern right now, is that we're going to have a situation like we had in 2008, where we have both some sort of systemic crisis plus a bad recession collide at the same time. Um, sounds like maybe you share that fear to a certain extent. Um, I guess let me um, ask I mean, you this. Oh, go ahead. It can happen. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you this, Danielle. If if if, if we just said, okay, pal, get out of the chair, Danielle, you're taking over, you get in. <laughs> what would you do right now? Besides probably try to not sit in that chair and, and avoid being in that position at all costs. Um, you know, is what he's doing, is it the necessary medicine we need? I and mean, we have a, we have an economy that is so in a market that is so addicted to the fed being Santa Claus all the time. Do we need to a take our, our medicine, but b also, you know, kind of be disappointed enough by the Fed to not just assume it's always going to be there to, to solve all our problems in the future? 
Um, so a week ago, I might have said um, th that we should expect at some point the, the Fed to back off. Uh, but that was a week ago. That was before I was that was before I was edified by Dr. Lacey Hunt, who is old enough to recall that we have this thing at the Federal Reserve called the discount window. And uh, of course, it's been stigmatized. Even the Fed, the Fed itself discourages use of the discount window. It prefers bailouts. And that was that was the the abrupt, terse language that Lacey used is I, I said, I asked him, I said, but what about financial instability? And he said, what about it, Danielle? He said, we have a discount window. We have bankruptcy courts. We have ways to work through these, meaning Lehman should have gone to the discount window and then gone bankrupt and, we, and AIG if need be. He's trying to say that we have a workout mechanism that can finally break the mindset of we're going to be there. So if I was head of the uh, head of the Fed, I would look to that discount window to take the weak players out. Out. Can, can you just describe the discount window a little bit for the average viewer that may not know what that term means? So you can approach the Fed in a time of distress for emergency funding. Um, <clears throat> people don't like to do it. It's a public thing. And it, it's public in the sense of the financial community knows when you've done this. Right. So you've basically you know, painted a target on your back that says, I'm out of here. I'm no longer a going concern, or I'm in such distress that I actually had to go to the discount window. Again, it is the most stigmatized. The Fed, the Fed, really stopped using it after the 1920s. After the 1920s, it's been a long, long time since the discount wow. window was used for its purpose. Which is, which is crazy because the Fed has only been founded since the 1913. So <laughs> it's yes. a long time. But, but there have been times that they have, there was a massive railroad that blew up the year I was born. Um, Lacey remind, reminded me of that. And there, there's, there's something to be said for, so this is, this is the other massive like epiphany moment that, that Lacey reminded me of, because I know that you have to go to Congress as the Fed if you lose money, which it, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to pay a lot of IOER, interest on excess reserves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I'm sure the banks don't mind who are receiving it. But at some point, even if the Fed does not sell a mortgage-backed security off of its balance sheet and thereby incurring a loss, at some point, they could simply have their operating expenses exceed their operating revenues, at which case they would have to go hat in hand to Congress because Congress would have to give the Fed the money to stay in business. It's the way it works. If you increase the deficit, you got to ask. And Lacey's like, give, give the Fed the money in exchange for saying that you'll never ever do quantitative easing again and then right. let the balance sheet run down. Because I'm asked all the time, I asked him, can they let QT go on and on and on? And he said, no, at some point they'll have to step back. 
But that doesn't, nor should it give the Fed license to restart QE for that to be the assumption. And Adam, since you didn't ask, I'll keep going. <laughs> the other thing that we saw come out of this dot plot was the presumption of recession, an increase in the unemployment rate. And we never saw out to 25, any kind of Fed funds below two. Right. So Powell could be resetting the floor. He could be getting rid of zero interest rate policy. We don't know. But he could be getting the Fed funds rate up high enough to say, we're going to stop it too because zero was a big mistake. Okay. I want to dig into that with you because the market's hopes, which are currently being dashed in the short term, are really pinned on. I, mean, I think the bullish argument here, that the only bullish argument I can find in the markets right now, except maybe things have gotten so oversold in the short term, maybe there'll be a short term bounce. But the, the main bullish case just seems to be, hey, look, at some point, the Fed's going to pivot, right? And, 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 and that's when, you know, we'll see prices start to go up again. Um, I want to put a pin in that first, though, because you you did wander into the next question I was going to ask you. Um, you recently had an excellent interview with Lacey Hunt. Um, we just had him on this channel. Um, he's such a treasure, um, such a font of knowledge about how the Fed works and, and you know, how the people who run the Fed work as well. Um, the question I, I was planning on asking you was, what were your key takeaways from the discussion? I think you just gave us a really big one. I've got one or two I'd love to get your reaction to, but is there anything else before I start talking that you took away from Lacey that's worth putting on the table here? Um, you know, he did, he did walk through a good bit of the history of what has happened at the Fed when they pivot with inflation too high. Mm -hmm. And- um, Just basically a reignition, right? Of right. inflation, yeah. But there is, a, there is a presumption there that is political that didn't necessarily come up with my conversation with Lacey. And that is, I, I can't tell you what a GOP-led House of Representatives, I, I cannot foresee that entity passing stimulus in a similar spirit to that which ignited inflation. Right, right. And that I think is, is key to the discussion. Um, we, we have to keep that in mind. And that in and of itself could be a game changer over the next two years after the election is if it's not going to be handing people money is fiscal stimulus necessarily going to be inflationary or is it just going to go back to being where it moves it just a little bit and then the, the and then it just pulls back because we had to learn the hard way you got to you have to directly deposit the money right right so you know years of of, of monetary inflation from the fed not not inflationary in the real world, certainly inflationary to financial assets. And of course, that stokes the whole wealth gap issue, which is very bad. Um, but it's not really until you just, you know, directly inject the stimulus in, into the circulatory system of the economy the way that fiscal stimulus does. And to your point, Danielle, it is looking, we'll know for sure within a month or so, but it's looking like we're going to have at least a divided Congress um, going forward. And it's much harder generally to push you know, stimulus packages, push anything through a divided Congress if the, 
the partisan sides are just trying to thwart each other. So um, maybe maybe we'll look at that as a good thing, um, at least from an inflationary standpoint. I mean, from an inflationary standpoint, it is a very good thing. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, so there were a couple of things that, that I took from the talk with Lacey. Um, uh, two scary things, one encouraging thing. Um, he, he said that the Fed is using the wrong models. Um, and even in terms of fighting inflation, he said that they are they are using, you know, sort of a Keynesian model that ignores some of the biggest levers that that actually give the Fed control um, over taming inflation. Um, so it was sort of his way of saying, you know, I think they're trying to do the right thing. And that was the the bullish thing, as you said, you know, the, the steps they are taking right now are the steps that they they need to take to keep to get inflation under control. I think he thinks they could be doing it better. And, you know, maybe you're talking about the discount window as an example of that. Um, but uh, but one, you know, it was it was a little bit nerve wracking to hear him say, I know these guys and they're basically using the wrong map. Right. So that was very worrisome. Um, the other thing that that really struck me from talking with him is I, I've had him. You know, I've interviewed him now for the past three years. And so pre COVID and pre all this massive inflation wave that we've had recently. And before we had all that, Lacey was very worried, as I know you know, Danielle, about deflation, right? And basically about the fact that we have a too much debt problem in this country. And it's one that, that we're now at the point where additional debt really isn't uh, stimulative to GDP anymore. Um, we, we don't get more than a dollar of growth for a dollar of debt we take on. So we're just digging this hole deeper and deeper for ourselves. And, and he was worried, you know, very worried about our ability to deal with that as a nation. Now he's saying, all right, look, put that to the side for a second. This inflation problem is the bigger immediate problem. It's a really big deal and we got to get it under control. And so I sort of walked away from that thinking, all right, Lacey, geez, so you're basically telling me we've got this new sort of existential problem. We've really got to get under control. Hopefully the Fed can do it, but, you know, it's not it's not the A students that are running the show here, hopefully, maybe. But even if they do, even if they thread the needle and they get us through the inflation challenge, well, then we still have this other massive deflationary existential challenge to deal with. So it was just kind of like we are we are building these horrible existential challenges that we're faced with. I mean, it, you kind of walk away from that at the big picture, just thinking like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to get out of this thing? So anyways, um, not sure how much of that you got from the discussion with him, but I... I I, uh, you know, it's kind of like we, you got to. I guess we got to fight the fires in sequence. But man, um, we got two really yeah, big I mean, fires we've got, to deal with. We, we've got, we have a demographic issue to to deal with in this country. It's not going away. And, no, and as Lacey likes to say, you know, demographics is destiny, right? That is right. And and you know, the 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 growth rate of the millennials is simply not what it needs to be to offset what we're going to be losing in terms of, of, of baby boomers. And, and so we'll be, we could, we could conceivably be talking about oversupply in housing for years, which would make most people's head explode right now to even contemplate, but we could. Yeah, but we absolutely could. And, and, and the, the scary part is, is, is we can look at other regions like Europe and like Japan and China, even their, their average age is older than ours and their, their population's aging faster on average than ours is. We can see where we're headed. 
I mean, it, it's it's we literally can get a preview of where we're going, right? If things don't change. So, um, all right, you you mentioned housing, and that's a great segue into the next question. I'm excited to talk with you about because you and I talk about this a lot on Twitter. I feel like you and I look at a lot of the same things and worry a lot about the same things. Um, so we've got a slowing economy, as you said earlier. The Fed is tightening into it. It's probably already broke something, but it's going to continue tightening. QT is now coming on full scale, right? So we are just like slamming on the brakes, right? Um, you just wrote a recent piece called The Wealth Effect in Reverse, right? And that I think is a great title for what's going on right now, because just as inflation, the worry about inflation is it becomes a mindset, right? Where consumers start spending their money faster because they expect it to be worth less and it creates this vicious cycle. Um, you have the same thing with the negative wealth effect, right? Whereas as people begin to think the future is going to be tough, they start pulling in the reins on their spending, which then slows economic growth further and makes the future tough, right? This is why the Fed will never say, I'm causing a recession, right? You know, Powell will use every other word he can, but if he says he wants to cause a recession, then everybody's going to act in advance and the recession is going to be, you know, self-fulfilling. So um, so we've got the markets coming down, right? So everybody with financial assets is now beginning to feel the pain, right? Now that's a smaller subset of America, right? It's like, was it top 10% or 90% of all the financial assets in the world? But these higher interest rates are, you know, skyrocketing mortgages. I mean, they're already over two times where they were just a little over a year ago. So we're watching the housing market basically just go into cardiac arrest here in real time. Um, you had a phenomenal interview with, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, like Lobo Lopez or something like that. But Lucky it, Lopez. Lucky yeah. Lopez. Yeah. About the auto loan market, right? And that's like the that's like this cycle subprime. I mean, that is just a freaking train wreck there. Um, and then we have the specter of job losses coming from, you know, all the layoffs that may be coming from all the slowdown in, in economic activity, um, margin compression in these companies, um, you know, trouble, higher cost of capital for them. I mean, it's, 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 it's really like a perfect storm that's slamming, you know, at least four different things slamming together here. So um, I guess how, how worried are you about this negative wealth effect and, and the likelihood of the recession that we're going into here is, is, is this going to be worse than we've seen for, gen you know, I don't want to say generations, but for decades. You know, that, that is, that is my concern. Um, there is still a tremendous amount of wealth that has been built. I mean, let's be clear about that, but through the second quarter, uh, according to the feds flow of funds data, we had the largest destruction of wealth in the history of the series, which is a post-war series. Uh, and that was just attributable to the stock market. It was actually offset by gains in residential real estate values. We know that that is going to go into reverse. There was a front page Wall Street Journal story. You know, luxury homes are declining at the fastest pace in 10 years. Um, the top 10% of, of Americans, they're, they, they amount to 4% of global GDP, 4%. The US consumer is 17% of global GDP alone because we're 70% consumption. Yep. So 17, 17% of global consumption is the US consumer. 
23.4% of U.S. consumption is that top decile. 40% of housing, 50% of education, the top decile. How much wealth is destroyed could, can be a, a game changer. If, if we start to see individuals in this uber wealthy bracket, this top 10% decide which of their homes they're going to keep and which of their homes they're going to sell such that they're only maintaining one. It, this could be something that, that we look back on and say, it really was the great Gatsby of the modern era. Mm -hmm. And the wealth was so in your face as to be something that that when we finally saw its reversal was was quite dramatic. And right now the wealth is is as ostentatious as it's ever been. There, yeah. the, the the wealthiest people in America no longer pretend. The humility is simply not there. And you just you know yeah you. Neil Howe comes to mind, you know, you have to ask yourself if this is something that is maybe not measured in decades, but generations. Right, right. Is this the fourth turning type of imbalance, right, where you have these things that, that just got so out of whack, they have to correct uh, socially. Um, gosh, so many things that you just mentioned there. Um, so it sounds like, I guess, to my question, you, you're, you're quite concerned, um, uh, you know, you, you, you talked about the housing market there. Um, and I could spend an hour with you on each one of these things. Um, and I'd love for you to give a little bit of a summary of your discussion with Lucky, just to give folks a sense for how material the, the, the auto market, the auto loan market is, because I think for many people, that's not really on their radar as a risk factor. I mean, it's, um, it's yeah, real, yeah. real quick before we get there, though, just on housing real fast. There's this narrative that like, well, housing's not going to be a problem. For, for two reasons. One, we don't have all those subprime loans that we had back in 2008. And two, we have this, this national inventory shortage. And I've heard from many people smarter than I that, that that narrative on the inventory shortage really isn't accurate uh, much at all. And, and you raised a really good point, which is a big thing that's different this time around is the number of homes that are held as an investment or as a second home. Right, so we've got way more institutional investors in, in the housing market than we ever did. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we have way more second home ownership than we did. One, because the wealthy own multiple properties, but also boomers, as they have been as they have been downsizing in housing, they haven't sold their other residents. They've held on to it because it's been performing so well. You know, housing was up 20% just last year alone. It's been like a stock in their portfolio, but those are those are the players. The people who own the, the, the additional homes, the investors who own many homes, in some cases, institutions own thousands of them, right? Single family homes. They're much weaker hands, right? Things start going south. All right, that's the inventory I'm getting rid of. It's not essential to me. I don't live in that home, right? So like there's a ton of factors just in housing alone that could make it go down, I think, a lot more than most people realize right now. Um, yeah, and you're nodding um, as I'm saying this. It was interesting because John Paulson gave an extensive interview with Bloomberg and laid out why this is not subprime, the redux. I, I, I mean, I get that. I really do. But, you know, to, to quote the, the great work of Dennis McGill from Zelman and Associates, you know, 
baby boomers, when they were at the first leading edge five years of their consumption, there was five years that the baby boomers bought more than any other time in their, in their generation as they were coming into their prime earning years. At that time, they were growing at four and a half percent, the baby boomers. The millennials right now, same juncture of their life, hitting their prime earning years, they're growing at 1.2%. So on a fundamental level, forget all the second homes you just talked about. And I like to call them the Airbnb jocks. Yeah. I own this many homes and this is my income. I'm, I'm a rock star. I'm, I'm in South Beach. I'm drunk. Um, so, but beyond that, so there's an underlying fundamental demographic that, that, it, that, that we might need 600,000 homes, maybe, if, if they're kind of entry-level-ish, 250,000, 300, maybe need 600,000 homes in this country. Um, we only have more under construction than any time since 1973, and there are only 830,000 apartments being delivered in the next 12 months. I'm sure that won't be a problem either. But when you think about how many boomers are carrying two mortgages, I mean, that doesn't work. Even if they've got lots of equity built up, even, even more reason for them to sell one or the other. Right, right. And then you've seen you know, some of these massive national investors start to step back from these geographies. One of them is cutting in half the number of, of, of MSAs that it's going to be investing in. You know, there, 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 there is, there's always a step function with these markets with labor the first thing you do is you you hire free you, you, you do a hiring freeze right and, and then you you then you let you, you know through cut a trip, hours or bonuses let, yeah. you cut hours and you you finally get to layoffs and in, in this particular total non sequitur moment you know these these layoffs in this cycle have all come with severance so why would we see rising jobless claims they have severance packages Usually you start at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to layoffs and they immediately file for unemployment insurance. We're not seeing that. We're seeing Redfin, you know, this latest round is going to cost us $26 million in severances. Um, but there's a, there, there, there's a process with housing as well. I just think that there is so much leverage with investors who were responsible for a third of all housing transactions last year. They're levered. And, and the, the cash flow assumptions are asinine in a, in a recession. So that's a technical term. So we'll see what happens, but it's the rapidity with which these markets are turning that is nothing short of shocking when it comes to housing. Uh, agreed, agreed. Okay, so uh, real quick, just if you could just sort of share some of the, the, the top takeaways from on the auto market from your, your interview there with Lucky and why we should care about this. So I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version as, as quickly as possible. When the CARES Act was passed and people were given stimulus checks and unemployment benefits, uh, the, the higher ups in DC whispered into the ears of the lenders, you know, you know that income verification model you have, throw it out the window. Did they get stimulus money? Great, then they qualify for the car loan, sell it to them. Okay, so that was A, lending, lending standards collapsed. Oh, and by the way, DC says, PS, 
don't collect the car payments for a long time. Be kind. <laughs> it's a pandemic. Yeah. So here we are. And, and GM, Ford, Toyota, Honda, they all also told the dealers, we know we can't get you cars. So we're going to relax the old rules that say that you can only sell a very small percentage of your car sales can be used. Until we find more cars, you can sell as many used cars as you want as a percentage of your revenues. Go for it. Well, new car salespeople only know how to sell back-end things. That's where the profit lives, right? Mm -hmm. So here's a 100,000-mile Camry. You know, let's, let's sell an extended warranty. What? I mean, just anything in the back-end that you can pile on. And it was. So, and then of course there's the bidding wars uh, and everybody's panicking because you get the exodus to the exurbs. So every millennial, they have to buy a car. It doesn't matter how much it costs, pay over MSRP. Uh, of course they, we've never owned a car before. Of course we need an extended warranty. Hello. You end up with a generation of cars that have 140, 150% LTVs. Just like we used to joke about with subprime wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. That's the analogy. It is just like the subprime housing lending, right? Yep. And so estimates are that we're going to ramp up to 15,000 car repossessions a day. Um, there was there was this cute little cottage industry where you could um, use your cryptocurrency as a down payment. Um, one of them was like a Lamborghini dealer. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. I wrote about I it. Ago. No, I know. Um, Dogecoin to buy your Lambo. Yeah. Uh, it, so that there was that. There was the PPP loan phenomena where people use PPP proceeds to buy a car. There was a very famous New York State license plate that read PPP loan. Um, and so those people, they're not making their payments either. Uh, so um, it, it's going to be a very interesting auto repossession cycle. My biggest takeaway from Lucky was that he's been in the business for 20 years. Typically, when his buddies who are in the repo business know that we're going into recession, they will lease lots for overage until the recession comes and goes, the worst of the wave. And right now, they're just buying, they're buying the property. They're buying them, right? Because they foresee how much business they're going to get. And how long it's going to and be. And how long it's going to last for. Yeah. Um, all right. So from a contagion standpoint, you know, that was the that was the thing about the housing, the bad housing loans last time is the contagion spread into the banking industry because uh, banks were exposed to all these these bad mortgages. Do we have a similar risk here? Um, the short answer is, is, is no. Uh, credit unions have been a huge part of this market. Um, th there there is something to be said for the fact that a lot of these same lax lending standards were up, um, were assigned to personal loans and credit card lending, as well as FHA mortgages. So there will be distress in other areas. I don't think it's going to be a problem for the banking system near as much as, uh, as, as commercial real estate for small and mid-sized lenders. I think that that's where that focus should be. And and then, of course, the corporate bond market. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Look, I, I want to move on to your view of of the markets uh, in just a second. But but to kind of put a an ending to this discussion. Um, so we've just talked about a lot of shoes that are highly likely to drop 
you know, over the coming months, quarters, year or so. Um, how how bad do you think it's likely to get? Like if we're if we're if, if we contain this to a recession, we're not going to. You know, there's some people that are worried about the big D word, depression, but let's just call it a recession. Do you see it as being materially worse or better or the same uh, versus some of the ones that people have lived through already you know, in, in our living lifetimes? So, um, so Adam, this is my greatest concern is that we could have systemic risk um, bubble up on a societal level. There, uh, we're, we're a divided nation. Okay, so th we're back to the fourth turning here then. Okay, keep going. Well, it, it is fourth turning, but it's also, you gave me a lot of money to not work. They automated my job out of existence. Yep. You gave me a lot of inflation by give so I can't afford to live anymore, and and now you're telling me that 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 my uncle's taxes are going up, whose whose portfolio I was counting on maybe to help me out get me through this rough patch, but his taxes are going up to take care of the public pension because it needs more money, so they got to yep. raise the taxes to cover that, even though his portfolio, his you know his nest egg has been decimated. And I'm pissed. Yeah, this is sort of the neighbor versus neighbor risk that you and I have talked about in the past. Either I'm 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 pissed a because I feel like I've gotten taken advantage of, but I'm also pissed because hey, those rich bastards have have made out like bandits, and also I'm pissed because you know my neighbor's pension's getting bailed out, and I'm not getting a bailout, or that guy's student loans are getting forgiven. Hey, I've already paid mine off right before I went college. I'm getting the short end of the stick. So it's more the sort of like fracturing of the social fabric you're talking about. And, and the difference between the first time that we've had this discussion and now is that in many cases, your kids are moving in with you. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Well, so I, I don't want to get too dark here, but, but so like, how well, does this manifest, well, do you think? Is it, is it, is it a rough couple uh, of years? Is it, is it a massive um, political sea change? What, what do you see coming out of this? Well, I, I was going to say that Lenar actually builds multi, multi-generational homes. Now you, you, you two can get one. Isn't that good? Yeah. Um, no, I, I think, um, I, I think the leadership vacuum in this country is going to have a, I think we're going to pay a price for that. Uh, and and the, in no time in U.S. history has it been more imperative for there to be a young leader rise who can unify the people. Somebody, yeah. somebody from the middle, somebody from the silent majority that absolutely has no voice anymore. Uh, no, no extreme left or right bullshit. Excuse my French. Just somebody from the middle uh, who, because I, I think that because of how our societal tensions that are undeniable because of where we are right now as a society, I think you're going to have to have a very strong force or go to war. And, and when you say go to war, do you mean go to war against another nation and that's what unifies another the country? Nation. Or do you mean like a, like a, a war in between? Civil war would be the, the, the culmination of what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking about be, being attacked as a country and coming together to defend a great nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and there's there's skeptical folks that would say maybe a war gets engineered to avoid the civil war, right? <laughs> to try to force that unity on us. I certainly hope that that's not where we're headed. Me too. There are other countries, namely India and China, who have a lot more people to throw at this than we do. Right. And they have their own issues as well, by the way. I mean, they're, they're of course. The, the U.S. is not unique in, in dealing with a lot of these. these it's these not. And actually, problems. before we move on to the markets real quick, I would just like to add that in 2008, Canada, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Australia, New Zealand, none of them had their housing markets implode. They just kept on getting more expensive. Yeah. So, again, the first word out of my mouth today was globality. I mean, we could have balance sheet recessions peppering the planet, balance sheet recessions. Right. And, and honestly, I mean, if, if we have one here in the US, it's highly likely that other countries are going to have it sooner and worse than we, just well, given we, our nature. We can have a plain vanilla recession. I don't think we'll have a balance sheet recession necessarily, because that really does get down to household debt. Mm -hmm. um, we can have a lot of households in distress. Our corporate bond market is a pick and train wreck. That's where the leverage lives right now. Right, right, right. Okay, wow, all right. Um, uh, you know, you, I'm realizing I forgot to ask a question. One last question on the Fed before we get to the markets. Um, one comment first, though, which is just just because you mentioned that there. I, I, I'm saying not that long ago, you look at the last, or at least one of the last times in in America's history where we had a lot of um, social uh, dysfunction and stress, and I'm thinking of the late '60s, right, mm -hmm. where we had the anti-Vietnam movement and the civil rights movement and the women's movement and all that stuff. Uh, and you look back and there, there are a lot of leaders that emerged from that, right? There are a lot of folks that you can talk to and you know, point to and now, oh, all right, Martin Luther King and, you know, Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and Bobby Kennedy and Gloria Steinem. And I mean, you can just sort of go down the list, right? The question I've just sort of been asking is where are they this time? You know, like we're, we're, we're really not seeing any emerge that, that are forming a critical mass around them. And especially that have a platform. That 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 are there's a lot of people out there making you know waves on social media about what they're against, um, but there's no new platforms emerging yet um, that I'm seeing at least um, you know about what they're for. Okay, this is the reform that we want to see going forward, and mm -hmm. I agree that 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 will happen at some point in time. Maybe we just things just need to get worse before you know the, the crucible produces somebody like that. But well, I'm seeing more rumblings about. Um and more public rumblings about term limits. And I think that I, I think that that's something that could come out of this. You know, if we didn't have so many damn octogenarians running the country, maybe things wouldn't have gotten this bad um, if we had term limits. So I am seeing that emerge. So that gives me a lot of hope and I'm gonna put a lot of energy behind that. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, and, and maybe you can name a few, but like, I just, who, who who's the person that's kind of got the platform that's driving that that's getting a lot of you know national attention rising behind them yet i'm not sure if that that leader's there yet um but i'll vote for that um just to be clear all right so the question about the fed was um so i mentioned briefly earlier fed pivot right so we just talked about all the slowing stuff so if the fed does pivot do you expect that that is going to be able to change uh the game very much? Is it going to pull us out of this recession and, and make it a shallow recession? I mean, we had a kind of blink and you miss it recession back in 2020 because of all the crazy stimulus. Or is it going to be harder for the Fed to dig us out of this one this time? 
Well, um, the Fed cannot go at it alone. Our interview with Danielle will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And remember, we're continuing our new practice of publishing my top takeaways from these weekly interviews. To get mine from this interview with Danielle for free, just go to wealthion.com slash Adams Notes. And finally, if the challenging macro outlook that Danielle's detailed in this interview has you feeling a little nervous about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth keeping in mind the trends and risks Danielle's mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth.